A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheißbare Brüder in America. So kauten Schabes at his guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Yehuda Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this is part two on the history of the Jews in the Soviet Union, and this special series has been made possible by Shuvu Chazayin Avraham Schools and is sponsored by Avram Biederman and Yossi Hach, the co-chairman of Shuvu, and dedicated in honor of the thousands of Shuvu Talmidim. So, again, we're going to get to Shuvu a little bit more in part three, but I was privilege to be able to have the opportunity to read an entire book about the organization and the history of the organization and uh, learning more about it. And it's, 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 it's an absolutely fascinating story um, about how the school system developed and all the uh, immigrants in the 90s uh, arriving and how students uh, were taken from uh, these among the immigrant uh, families into these religious schools uh, built specifically for this purpose and how 30 years later uh, the it has grown and keeps on growing. Now there's even more coming to Shuvu schools even more just in the last few weeks because of all these uh, Ukrainian Jewish refugees arriving in Israel. Um, before we get into part two, I want to make note of the passing of Reb Chaim Kanievsky, who was actually born in Pinsk, then in Poland, today in Belarus, and he was world-renowned as a tremendous Talmud Chacham and Masmid, who had a total and complete command and recall of the entirety of Torah at his fingertips and was the author of many highly acclaimed Sfarim. May his memory be a blessing. Also, the ongoing situation uh, with Ukrainian Jewry continues, the refugee crisis, and uh, recently, just before Purim, uh, my dear friend and and uh, colleague, uh, Davi Safir, wrote a song, Dear Am Yisrael, which is you know, sung by Benny Friedman, and it's all over the place, everyone's listening to it, and uh, it turns out that not only is is he a good a good friend and a an accomplished historian and researcher and writer, but he's a talented songwriter, which is more of an artistic talent. So here you have someone who's so multi-talented uh, that Davi is able to 
uh, write songs as well. So I wish him luck in in that future career. So we get to part two of the history of the Jews in the Soviet Union. Part one, we covered the lead up to the revolution, the revolution and its aftermath and the initial struggles to maintain religious life uh, in the Soviet Union during the early years. Now I want to uh, move ahead and and make some goals for part two. I want to focus, uh, firstly, we'll open up with the war and the focus would be on the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, and then a bit of Soviet Jewish life in the aftermath of the Second World War, which is a bit of a dark time in Soviet Jewish history. I think I'll start off with, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to try to do this, we'll see if time permitting. Um, I want to you try to you know, do a little bit of a different, I don't know, different, a little bit of an interesting format here um, in part two, but I'm going to try to, relay the story by profiling specific individuals, and I'm going to try to go through several of them over the course of this um, over the course of this uh, segment. And I'm going to open up with the story of Lieutenant General Yaakov Smushkevich. And Yaakov Smushkevich was born in Rakeshok in Lita, Lithuania. He attended a cheder. He was in a traditional and observant Jewish home. And his father was a tailor, and like uh, many of the others uh, during World War One in the Kovna district in Lithuania, like many others, were exiled um, into the Russian interior. And over there, he was exposed to communism, and he, you know, full full-heartedly joined the revolutionary movement. He joined the Red Army. He fought in the in the Russian Civil War. He later was a political officer. Uh, a commissar, and he was later on a regular a combat officer. He rose through the ranks. He later attended flight school and flight training and became a high-placed Air Force officer in the developing Soviet Air Force. And he actually had a big hand in the development of the Soviet Air Force, and he's dispatched in that capacity to be one of Stalin's representatives in the Spanish Civil War. Um, like many others at the time. And he flew missions in the Spanish Civil War. He also served as a liaison of some sort. And for that, he received, upon his return to the Soviet Union, he received the highest decoration in the Soviet Union, the Hero of the Soviet Union Award. A year later, a year or so later, he fights, again, as a senior Air Force officer in the Battle of Khalkin Gol, which was against the Japanese Imperial uh, military, and which is a decisive uh, battle, uh, which is in, in many some historians even see that as the opening, the real opening battle of World War II. But that's for another story. And in that, for, for his actions during that battle, he wins a second Hero of the Soviet Union decoration, which is a rare feat. Almost, I think it's one of only a few people who who uh, were decorated as such with two Hero of the Soviet Unions. And he's appointed the head of the entire Soviet Air Force. In many ways, he's the architect of the modern Soviet Air Force. And he was the chief of staff of the Air Force during the Winter War against Finland. And it was in that capacity that he writes a big critique on the Air, on the Air Force and, and uh, the, the personnel and, and, and the needs for improvement in, 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 on the mechanical side. Um, and then uh, there was some... Issues with the Air Force leadership, uh, they incurred Stalin's fury, 
and they were purged. Um, the entire Air Force leadership, all the senior officers in the Air, in the Soviet Air Force, are purged in the spring and summer of 1941. In early June 1941, uh, Yakov Smushkevich is arrested by Beria, by the uh, NKVD, and he's killed without trial in October, several months later, along with all the other senior officers uh, of the Air Force, just as Operation Barbarossa, the German invasion of the Soviet Union, was beginning. And he is rehabilitated with his awards returned to his family in 1954, which is obviously the year after Stalin died. Why do I choose to open up uh, the story of our second installment with that? Because I think Yakov Smuskevich, of course, he reached a very, very high place in Soviet society, but it's very characteristic of, uh, to a certain extent, the story of the Soviet Soviet Jewry uh, during the second time period. They arrived, they, you know, many of them had origins way back in the Pale of Settlement, many of them in religious homes. They integrate very quickly into Soviet society, and many of them the social mobility and their educational opportunity, they rise and assimilate and integrate very quickly. And unfortunately, uh, because of the purges, because of World War II, because of Stalin's paranoia, or a combination of all three, uh, many of them meet a terrible end, uh, dark end during this uh, pretty dark time. Um, at the outset of, of this second part, I want to mention another uh, major contribution to the scholarship of the uh, Jew, history of the Jews in the Soviet Union, and I specifically waited till part two. If you recall, at the beginning of part one, I mentioned a long list of scholars whose works I used, and I didn't want um, uh, Professor Henry Abramson to get lost in the shuffle, so I wanted to save him for part two just to mention him separately because uh, um, his contribution to uh, uh, um, the uh, the the field of scholarship on the Jews of the Soviet Union, especially in Ukraine, um, is a, a, a tremendous amount, and he has lectured on the topic and written books and articles, and he also has a, I, I happen to know him personally, and he has a great relationship of, with Jewish history soundbites and myself, um, so that I utilized a lot of his stuff uh, already from part one, but especially uh, now as we move into the next stage, and I'm going to speak soon about Solomon Michels. I just bumped into one of his lectures on Solomon Michels, which I utilized as well. So I've been using his stuff all the time. So thank you, uh, Dr. Abramson, for all you've done for this topic as well. So, and we uh, talk about the uh, Holocaust in the Soviet Union, which I'm going to get into more of the context of how we get to that point because the Soviet Union only joins the war upon the German invasion in June 1941. The first couple of years of the war, they're not involved. There's a non-aggression pact, but I'm going to get to that. But there's, in, in an overall sense, there's several uniquenesses of the story of the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, which I want to emphasize because the Holocaust in the Soviet Union is, primar- is very much overlooked. It's, uh, it's Till recently, it's been overlooked. There's no Auschwitz. There's no numbers in arms. They're the mostly the Holocaust survivors of the Soviet Union remained in the Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain for many years. They weren't in the shuls in Bara Park and in Yerushalayim to tell their stories, and they weren't around to tell their stories to Spielberg 
in the 90s, for the most part, though there were Spielberg interviews with them as well. And until recently, there weren't that many in Yad Vashem's archives either. Of course, the last 15 years, a lot of that has changed. The last 15, 20 years, a lot of that has changed. But for but it's been a it's been uh, you know um, not so much known or very, a lot under, under, misunderstood. So I'm going to just speak about some of the uniquenesses of the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, which is a very very uh, important story to understand the history of the Jews in the Soviet Union because it has long lasting impact on Jewish identity and Jewish life in the Soviet Union in the ensuing decades after World War II. So first of all, the what is the Soviet Union at this time? It is, uh, until 1939, it's what, what it was in 1922. But because of the Molotov von Ribbentrop non-aggression pact, the secret clause of that pact was that the Red Army is going to invade eastern Poland. And then later on, there was a separate agreement that the Soviet Union can invade the Baltic states as well, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And therefore, by the end of 1939, Eastern Poland is incorporated into the Soviet Union. And by the summer of 1940, the Baltic states, states excuse me, are incorporated into the Soviet Union. So now, Lithuania, Vilna, Kovna, um, all these places like that are part of the Soviet Union. And the Jews living there are now Soviet Jews. And, and, uh, and the same thing with Eastern Poland. Uh, Lvov and Grodna and Mir and Radin and, and all these places in Galicia, which are now Western Ukraine, and, and the places in, uh, in, in northeastern Poland, which are now Western Belarus, all these places all of a sudden become instantly into the Soviet Union. And as far as Stalin and the Soviet government is concerned, these places are Soviet Union. As far as the Nazis are concerned, when they invade a year later, they're invading the Soviet Union. And therefore, their anti-Jewish policies that they carry out in these areas, even if they had just been incorporated into the Soviet Union just one year earlier, so they weren't that Sovietized, so to speak, but still they're considered the Soviet Union. That's an important piece of uh, history to remember. Because until 1939, there were approximately 3 million Jews in the Soviet Union, making it the second largest Jewish community in Europe after Poland. But after 1939 and 40, when they incorporate all this extra territory in, now they inherit nearly 2 million more Jews. So when the Nazis invade Barbarossa in uh, June 1941, they are invading the Soviet Union, which now has close to 5 million Jews which makes it by far the largest Jewish community in the world. Um, that's one thing to keep in mind. The second, second point is, is that the Jews of the Soviet Union are the first victims of the Holocaust. They are killed before the deportations from the ghettos begin in Poland. They are killed before the deportations begin in other parts of Europe. They are killed right in the summer of, mostly in the summer of 1941. There's a second stage, of course, in the summer of 1942. Um, but for the most part, uh, there's these mass shootings that begin immediately with the invasion uh, of the Nazis. There's, uh, and they're shot. Another uniqueness is, is that they're shot in mass graves. Uh, they're killed, they're forced to out of, out of the town. Sometimes it's only the adult men. Very often it's the entire population of the town, men, women, and children, who are rounded up and brought to the outskirts of the town or the Jewish cemetery or somewhere else nearby. And they're forced to dig their own graves. 
and they're machine gunned into those mass graves. And therefore, it's a completely different experience. There's not really that many camps. There's definitely no gas chambers. There's occasionally slave labor camps that some are sent to. There are ghettos because of the ones who are killed in later stages, so they're put into ghettos in the interim. But it's a different type of ghetto experience than the one in Poland because the ghettos are established after there's already been mass shootings uh, for a large segment of the population of those communities. Also, these mass shootings take place very quickly, usually uh, just a few days or a few weeks after the initial Nazi occupation. There's no time for the Jews of the Soviet Union to process what's going on. They haven't yet heard what happened. There's no year or two in the ghettos like in Poland or other places in Europe. There's no longer drawn-out process. Not only that, but the early shootings of the Jews in the Soviet Union are not even part of the final solution. They're part of the war. They're part of the war in the East, of the strategic military goals, because the Jews are seen as part of the strategic enemies, since the Jews are Bolsheviks in the Nazi mind, and the Nazi propaganda. So it's only later on, in towards the end of 1941, that the final solution is even decided upon by Hitler and the Nazi leadership. So the first several months, where there's all these mass shootings across the Soviet Union, they're not even killed as part of the final solution. They're killed because they're seen as part of the strategic enemy in the East, which was a war without rules, a war without any concern for the Geneva Convention, and, it, and, it, and, it, and you know, there was massacres of many Soviet citizens as well, starvation and shooting Soviet prisoners of war. All kinds of war crimes are there. And in the initial stages, the Jews are part, just part of that story. And then only the final solution actually develops because of what happens in the East. Um, another uniqueness is, is that the Jews in the Soviet Union are killed near their homes, uh, right outside their towns. There's a lot of local collaboration in Ukraine, Lithuania especially, those two places, but in all other places as well, as less so in Belarus and in Russia itself. But uh, especially in Ukraine, many of the shootings are done by locals, Lithuania also. So the Nazis are utilizing and capitalizing on old anti-Semitism, greed, um, associations of Jews with Bolsheviks, all kinds of things like that that the locals have, and therefore, that becomes part of the story as well. And that is a very important part to emphasize because, like I said, the survivors of the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, for the most part, remain there. They don't leave after the war. They're not able to, even if they wanted to, because you're not allowed to leave the Soviet regime um, if you're a Soviet citizen. So they live next to their neighbors, who many of them were collaborators. Um, there was almost no chance of survival under the direct Nazi occupation. The, the Soviet Jews who remained under Nazi occupation had almost no chance of surviving. Um, the the uh, there was almost no survivors. The one the Russian the Soviet Jews who did survive is because one of the other uniquenesses of this story is that the Soviet Union is the only country in the world that during World War II was half occupied by the Nazis and half unoccupied. So if you were lucky enough to get into the unoccupied part of the country, then you were pretty much safe for the remainder of the war. Nothing happened to you. If you were unlucky enough to be in the occupied half of the country, then you had almost no chance of surviving. 
Um, another uniqueness was that the fact that the Jews served in the Red Army. So you have a half a million Jews who are not victims. They are, they are part of the war effort. So there's, their families may be being massacred by the Einsatzgruppen, or they may have escaped into the Russian interior. But then there's these half a million soldiers who are drafted into the, Russia, the, the Red Army, who serve in the Red Army, some as officers, some as senior officers, and many of them are just as regular soldiers. So that's a whole story as well. Not only that, but close to 200,000 of them, it's an incredibly high uh, rate, are get killed or casualties uh, 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 of World War II. So here you have a situation where there are Jews killed on the Eastern Front by Nazi bullets, and they're not really Holocaust victims because they're killed as soldiers in the Red Army. So that's another uniqueness. And then that's also a way, the ones who did survive, that was a way of survival, right? Um, and then the fact that Jews stayed there in the Soviet Union after the war, behind the Iron Curtain. And what do they do for Holocaust memory? And uh, many of us mistakenly assume that they didn't do much. But really there's a huge effort in building Holocaust monuments, in putting, erecting uh, uh, um, uh, monuments over mass graves, over reburials of mass graves, of in being involved in Holocaust memory and all kinds of gatherings and, 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 and other things. The Soviet Jewry was very, very involved in, uh, in Holocaust memory and, and commemoration and and uh, in, in monuments and all those things throughout the Soviet era, even when it was difficult, even when monuments were torn down, they would put them right back up again. So all these uh, all these things make uh, make for a very very important story, and um, and which has, like I said, very much been overlooked. In general, the war on the Eastern Front needs to be understood a little bit of of that context about. On June 22, 1941, the Nazis invade the Soviet Union, they're on edge on the Molotov and Ribbentrop uh, uh, non-aggression pact, and, and there's this brutal war. That's, that's, uh, there's the Commissar Order, there's, it's, it's a no-rules war. And as far as Hitler's concerned, the war is being fought on the, on the Eastern Front. Uh, I know that uh, till today, schools in the West, in England, the United States, they teach a lot about the uh, the uh, Western European theater in France, and and and, and they teach a lot about uh, the North African theater, and and really there's nothing to compare. It was like you know, really a, a small theater um, as far as Hitler was concerned, as far as the numbers are concerned, right? The North African theater at its peak had seven divisions. Rommel's Rommel has seven divisions facing uh, Montgomery. Uh, and in the Western Front, at its peak, in the in the winter of 1944-1945, I think had 65 divisions, whereas in the Eastern Front there was well over 200 divisions uh, facing the uh, the Red Army um, at different stages um, uh, for, for throughout the war. Um, so the the and and. Erich von Manstein, Field Marshal Erich von Manstein, one of the top Nazi field marshals, one of the greatest Nazi generals, by some accounts the greatest military strategist of World War II, the greatest military general of World War II, although he was a war criminal. Uh, but he, he, he said in November, uh, he said, uh, made a statement to his soldiers, signed a statement to his soldiers, uh, since June 22nd, 
the Wehrmacht is involved in this uh, life and death struggle, the Jewish Bolshevik system must be wiped out once and for all and should never again be allowed to invade our European living space. So you have to understand it, how, it, how, it, how it is from the... And that, again, that's from the Wehrmacht. That's from von Manstein. That's not from the SS. That's not from the Einsatzgruppen. That's from the regular German army who assisted the Einsatzgruppen in, uh, in, uh, in gathering up Jews and sometimes even in actively... Uh, shooting them together with the ISIS group, and so the, the there is this blurring of the lines in the Eastern Front. Um, initially, when the von Ribbentrop uh, Pact is is signed, there's actually a Jewish foreign minister was the the the, uh, the Soviet foreign minister was was a Jewish Maxim Litvinov, and he is fired for all kinds of reasons, but. Um, but definitely the fact that he was Jewish wouldn't have helped him, wouldn't have helped Stalin uh, be able to sign the non-aggression pact. So Molotov is appointed foreign minister, although Molotov's wife was Jewish. So, you know, still, he still had a Jewish factor in there. And, and the Molotov and Ribbentrop pact is a very important piece of history. And like I said, that makes all these other Jews of Eastern Poland and the Baltic States become uh, Soviet Jews and have... Um, the invasion, the Einsatzgruppen, and um, in fact, recently it's become one of the major factors in it becoming more researched is this incredible work of this, from, I think he's French, French Catholic priest, uh, Father Patrick Debois, who has this organization, Yahad in Unum, uh, which, and he wrote all kinds of books and articles about it, lectures about it, very Hard to read, but incredible, incredibly well-written book, The Holocaust by Bullets, which uh, covers the Holocaust in the East, uh, in the Soviet Union. And he himself goes down and interviews uh, bystanders, elderly bystanders, since, you know, the past 25 years or so. Um, he goes down to all these little towns. In, just in Ukraine alone, he's found 1,200 mass graves. Um, and uh, it's absolutely, you know, talking about an enormous, enormous work, what, he, what he's been involved in. Um, then you have Yitzchak Arad's uh, book, The Holocaust in the Soviet Union, which is like, you know, well over a thousand pages. Yad Vashem has been doing a lot of work recently. Um, the, the Holocaust in the Soviet Union is nearly a third of all Holocaust victims, about 1.6, 1.7, depending on how you, what you include in, in, uh, in the numbers. But there's nearly two million Jews who were killed. So you're talking about uh, in these mass graves all over the far reaches of the Soviet Union. So this geographical spread plus the numbers, and you see that all in context, this becomes a major, major part of the Holocaust that we often don't look at that that way. Um, and this brings us to another part of the story. The in order to garner more support uh, for what's going on in the Soviet Union in the West. So Stalin uh, appoints a open a Jewish anti-fascist committee by leading Jewish writers, uh, um, uh, poets, uh, journalists, uh, intellectuals. Uh, Itzik Pfeffer, Solomon Michel, Zilia Ehrenberg, Vasily Grossman, and many others, and they um, and they. Uh, you know, to talk talk about what's going on with the Jews in the Soviet Union, and this way they would, you know, Stalin believed his own propaganda that the Jews in the United States control the country, and 
and the media and the banks and everything else. So if we get the Jews of the Soviet Union to connect with them, then that will garner more support for the Soviet Union and Lend-Lease. And then eventually, of course, the United States joins the war officially, but still to get more support for the Soviet Union during the uh, great alliance between um, you know, the Allied uh, uh, countries against uh, uh, the Nazi menace. In, in fact, in that capacity, Itzik Pfeffer and Solomon Michels visit the United States in 1943 on a seven-month world tour supported by Stalin to be able to g- generate more support. And they mit- meet with uh, so, uh, American Jewish leaders, and they're like greeted as heroes. Here are these great uh, um, uh, uh, heroes of the Yiddish stage and, and Yiddish poetry and and uh, uh, of the arts of the Soviet Union, and here they're coming to visit American Jewry, and uh, uh, it's you know, a very poignant uh, meeting because this is pretty much the only meeting between the two communities, and as we'll see shortly after the war, uh, Stalin doesn't see a need for the anti-fascist committee anymore, so he arrests them all and has them all killed because... That's the type of thing that Stalin did. So, so uh, Michels and Pfeffer were eventually killed. But, um, but uh, the um, this this uh, visit was a, a fascinating visit. In fact, there's a, a very a powerful picture of uh, Michels and Pfeffer visiting the grave site of Shalom Aleichem in Queens. And they said they like to pay their respects by the uh, architect of modern uh, Yiddish culture. And here are the two great uh, Soviet communist Yiddish culturists of the Soviet Union come together with some of the American Yiddishist, uh, I think, uh, uh, Shalom Aleichem's communist son-in-law, Benzian Goldberg, uh, was there in that picture as well. Uh, either way, that was a, a, a whole visit. Well, they go back and eventually there's a book written um, Ilya Ehrenberg, one of the greatest uh, Soviet Jewish writers, together with Vasily Grossman, the famous uh, Soviet Red Army journalist, um, they they gather documentation on the Holocaust in the Soviet Union. They're commissioned to do so by the Soviet government, and it's called the Schwarze Buch, the Black Book of Soviet Jewry, where they get first-hand testimony and documentation, Nazi documentation, Soviet documentation of the Holocaust in the Soviet Union. Incredible work. This is the first documentation of the Holocaust commissioned by the Soviet government, done by Jews of the Soviet Union as the war is happening. An amazing work, um, which also, again, is overlooked. It eventually was published outside the Soviet Union because Stalin changed his mind about it after the war. He didn't need any book that focuses on the Jewish uh, part of the war, um, in which the Schwarze Buch did, which was against the official Stalin policy of looking at all victims of the uh, of uh, of uh, uh, anyone killed by the Nazis as communist victims of Nazi tyranny. Um, so, and Soviet citizens being killed, and it can't be anything special about Jews being killed. So. So the Schwarze Buch wasn't uh, good as far as Stalin was concerned, but it was published outside the Soviet Union. It is available today, and it's still a fascinating and important work which uh, Ehrenberg and Grossman succeeded in putting together. Ehrenberg, as a result of all this activity, becomes something of a leader of Soviet Jewry. And even though he's only supposed to be this head of this anti-fascist committee uh, working for the, for the Stalinist government and gathering materials and creating propaganda... But he becomes seen as this uh, 
leader of Soviet Jewry, and there's this whole collection of letters that he receives from rank-and-file Soviet Jewish citizens in the 1940s. Excuse me. Um, and... Um, um, which is a fascinating, it's a, you know, an insight into Soviet Jewry at that time, like the anonymous people of Soviet Jewry, but asking them for help, for for financial assistance, for you know their refugees going back home, about their families who were lost, about their families who were killed, about how they had served in the Red Army, about everyday life in the Soviet Union. That he kept all these letters. He's one of the few. Ehrenberg is one of the few members of the uh, anti-fascist committee who. Uh, survived the purge uh, afterwards. Uh, he was not killed by Stalin. Um, he survived long enough into the 1970s. In the 1950s, Ehrenberg wrote a book called The Thaw um, after Stalin had died to test the limits of uh, post-Stalin censorship. And in fact, the what's now known as the Khrushchev Thaw probably takes its name from Elia Ehrenberg's uh, book. But he was a very prominent writer in general in the Soviet Union, not only with the Jewish community, um, especially in in, uh, in in inflaming the, uh, the Soviet masses against uh, the Nazi enemy, um, he also was the first one to publicly write in Pravda, in his capacity as one of the top journalists of Pravda, that uh, that there there was a genocide and a final solution against the Jewish people, and that six million Jews were killed, which he got away with that in 1944 before the policy was changed that you were not allowed to write such things. So he's the first one to speak about that. Uh, maybe it was 1945 already. Um, double check that date. Um, and and uh, and. Um, and uh, Vasily Grossman, who follows the Red Army in the Battle of Stalingrad and everywhere else, but he's also there by the liberation of Treblinka. He's there by the liberation of Auschwitz. So Grossman and Soviet Jews are the first ones to publicize what goes on there. Again, these things are usually overlooked. Um, we talk about the American Army's liberation of the concentration camp at Buchenwald. Well, we overlook the Soviet Red Army and the job of Jewish journalists like Vasily Grossman, Ilya Ehrenberg, who documented the crimes at places like Treblinka and Auschwitz, which is much more significant, and at Babi Yar and at Ponar, and at the Ninth Ward and Covenant, and all these places, and, uh, and they're the ones doing it and publicizing it to the world. Um, eventually, Soviet Jews erect monuments at many of these uh, mass graves at Babi Yar. In fact, the Babi Yar massacre where 33,771 Kiev Jews were killed in a, uh, in, in a two-day mass shooting with a lot of Ukrainian collaboration. Um, in uh, September 29th and 30th, 1941, so the second day, the 30th of September, was Erev Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur became something of a Yom HaShoah, like a Holocaust memory day in the Soviet Union, and that actually assisted in retaining Jewish identity in the Soviet Union, because Yom Kippur shuls were allowed to be opened uh, throughout the Soviet Union, and everyone was allowed to come to shul to honor the memory of the victims of Nazi tyranny. Um, it was illegal. Uh, so people would be able to have a connection to Shul on Yom Kippur and say Kaddish uh, because, uh, because it happened to coincide with the end of the massacre at Babi Yar. And therefore, Holocaust memory becomes a major component of Jewish activity and of Jewish identity in the Soviet post-war. Um, and the fact that there was so much collaboration has its effect on Jewish integration into the surrounding Soviet society in the post-war. The high intermarriage rate of pre-war 
the Jewish community of the Soviet Union would not be matched for decades. In other words, there's this much lower rate of intermarriage in the Soviet Union after the war and the Holocaust. It kind of puts the brakes on assimilation and intermarriage, which again, I think, is another fact that is often overlooked or not known. Um, so uh, that is that is that story. Now, it's interesting, um, I once saw a fascinating video, you know, everyone knows of the uh, Sobibor, uh, uh, escape from Sobibor. So, the Sobibor, the Zunderkommando who escapes from Sobibor, the Sobibor death camp is made up of Polish Jews, and then there's also this contingent of uh, Soviet Red Army uh, Jewish soldiers who were separated from Soviet prisoners of war and sent to Sobibor. And the, the head of that group was the Soviet uh, uh, Red Army Jewish officer, Sasha Pachersky. And and he uh, survives and makes it back to the Red Army and survives the war, lives through the 1980s, lived a long life. And there's the video I once saw of he and a group of Soviet Jewish survivors of Sobibor having a get-together in the 1970s uh, 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 commemorating the Sobibor revolt and 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 uh, and the victims of the Sobibor death camp, and 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 you hear him talking like it's a you know it's a real normal video uh, documenting the event. So again, we don't usually associate uh, this with the with the uh, with the behind the iron curtain world, but it definitely was there. Um, Solomon Michels, who I mentioned, is a fascinating story. He's this uh, this this. You know, one of the biggest celebrities, so to speak, in the in the Soviet Union. He he grew up in Dvinsk, and he goes to law school in Saint Petersburg uh, already before World War One, and then he um, becomes one of the founders of the Moscow State Jewish Theater, the Yiddish Theater of Moscow, under the Soviet Union, and in that capacity, he. He plays Tevya from Shalom Aleichem's for uh, the, uh, the Tevya the Dairyman, um, and he. Um, this was funded and supported by the Soviet state, and and it was with a very Soviet communist message, and he um, and later on he's part of the Jewish anti-fascist uh, committee, and. But then he falls into disfavor when Stalin, after the war, decides to disband this committee. And he's killed by Stalin's direct orders in Minsk in 1948. And he, uh, they tried to frame his death by pretending that it was a, it was a car accident. They took the body of his, his dead body and they put it into a street and they had a truck run over it and pretended that it was just an accident. Um, but that, that, that's how he met his end. Um, his friend Itzik Pfeffer uh, met his end a little later with the Night of the Murdered Poets when Yiddish poets were rounded up. Um, in the post-war era, uh, Stalin's paranoia came to a new terrible level, and there was the, like I said, the Night of the Murdered Poets. There was the Doctor's Plot, where Jewish doctors, mostly Jewish, it wasn't only Jewish doctors, were arrested. Uh, there's this anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union at the end of the Stalin era. Uh, they didn't call it anti-Semitism, of course. They called it uh, rootless cosmopolitanism. Um, but it was clearly against Jews, and, um, and it was a very, very dark time, a very uh, rough time for Jews in the Soviet Union at the time. There's also another uh, factor to take into here, both by the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, as well as 
the um, as well as the general story of the Jews of the Soviet Union, is that we focus on the Ashkenazi Jews of the former Pale of Settlement, whereas there was many non-Ashkenazim in the Soviet Union as well. And at some point we need to get to their story, I guess maybe in part three we could talk about them. Uh, Sephardic Jews, Bukharian Jews, Georgian Jews, Mountain Jews in the Crimea, um, and uh, it's, it's a great story because many of these Jewish communities did not live in the Pale of Settlement, and they were the only Jews, or not, not the only, but they were from the only Jewish communities who as a community were not required to live in the, in the Pale of Settlement in Tsarist times. And then in the Soviet Union, there was sometimes a similar policy enacted uh, with, the, with these Jews as, as was of the regular Jewish community. Um, the majority Jewish community, I should say, not regular, um, but but there was often differences. And uh, again, when the when Einsatzgruppen D, when the Nazi occupation reaches Georgian Jews and Mountain Jews and, and those areas, what's going to be their policy? Do they see them racially as Jews or not? That's also an interesting story as well. But let's move on to the post-Stalin era when there's struggles to maintain religious life in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. The, there's still um, rabbis who are associated with Chabad, the last rabbis of the older generation. There's people like Rabbi Yitzhak Silber who are emerging as these clandestine, uh, you know, people keeping Judaism with their families and trying to impact Jewish communities. There's a tremendous lack of Jewish education and communal life and very limited access to synagogues and shuls. And there's therefore an almost a near extinction of religious life at this time. And this is the grim reality of Soviet Jewish life and identity after the 1950s. So... There is this struggles of, of Chabad and others, like I said, to maintain religion. In fact, we can probably have an entire episode devoted to the efforts of Chabad and other rabbis at this time to try to struggle and maintain religion under the worst, darkest days of Stalinism in the early 50s. And even in the so-called Christian thaw, where it was not that much easier to have a religious life in the Soviet Union. So, uh, the... the um, the Yiddish culture is now frowned upon. Um, anything remaining of Jewish political life, religious life, uh, cultural life, is almost comes to a complete end. In fact, right after the war, 1946 and 47, there's this agreement that the Soviet Union has to allow Polish refugees who had been, in other words, Polish citizens, non-Soviets, who had been in the Soviet Union during the war, there was a reparation plan which allowed the exit of Polish refugees back into Poland. So many Soviet Jews tried to avail themselves of this opportunity as well by forging Polish passports. In Chabad history, this is a major chapter because this is when many of the last major figures of, of, of Chabad, of Lubavitch, rabbis, families, uh, tried to get out and, and they had this... Uh, Many of them had been underground in their attempts to maintain time chetrim yeshivas underground, now attempted to escape. In fact, one of the organizers of this escape was the legendary Mendel Futterfass, whose family got out, and who he assisted many others in getting out, and he was going to try to get out on the last train, 
and he didn't make it, and he's actually arrested at this time by the Soviets and sent to Siberia, and even when he's released, he stays in the Soviet Union until the 70s, and he becomes uh, the stuff of legend of what he tries to do to maintain keeping Fabrengans going in Smarkand in the, in the 1960s and 70s, an incredible story of Mendel Futafas and many others like him uh, who, uh, who tried to keep the light uh, burning of Yiddishkeit at this time. I want to, uh, just for a couple of minutes, go through some of the rabbis of Moscow during this time to give an insight as to how there is this deterioration of Soviet Jewish life as, as can be seen through the rabbis of the Choral Synagogue in Moscow, which was a legally functioning synagogue throughout the Soviet era from beginning to end. Um, so I think this could be a good way of, of, of seeing it. Uh, there was a, a fellow by the name of Rabbi Shmaryo Yehuda Leib Medalia, who was born into a Chabad Hasidic family in Lithuania, and he studies at the Slabatki Yeshiva, which was not all that common for one from a Hasidic background to study in the Slabatki Yeshiva, but it happened occasionally, and he was the rabbi of several towns in Russia before the revolution, including Vitebsk, and he participated in the 1910 rabbinical conference in St. Petersburg, and in the founding of Agudis Yisrael in Katowice, and he's later the chief rabbi of Moscow under the Soviets from 1933 until 1938. 1938, during the Great Purges, he's arrested and killed. So, even though the Moscow Choral Synagogue was allowed to operate and host religious services during this time, but it was under constant NKVD surveillance, and it was suspected of being a center of Zionist activity and other Jewish nationalist activity, so it was a complicated situation. Another Chabad Chassid, a student of the original Taimchet Mimim in Lubavitch, from Shmuel Leib Levin, he also served for a brief time as the rabbi in Moscow. And then we have a fascinating figure, a fellow by the name of Reb Shlema Schleifer, who was seen by many as the ultimate Rav Mitam, the ultimate, you know, uh, subservient government-appointed rabbi. But others see him as someone who did a lot for his people under very, very difficult circumstances, and you can't blame the guy. Um, and he, his life story is really an accurate depiction of Soviet Jewry in the 1950s. He grows up in a rabbinic home before the war, before World War I, in other words. He studied at the Lida Yeshiva of Rabbi Yitzhak Yaakov Reines. He moved to Moscow in the 1920s and served as the secretary of the Choral Synagogue prior to his appointment as rabbi there. And he expressed lots of patriotism to the Soviet regime. He lost a son who was serving in the Red Army during the war. And he served as a member of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee that I mentioned earlier. And to demonstrate his loyalty to the Soviet government, he composed a prayer uh, in honor of the Soviet government and a prayer for the health of Yusuf Stalin and that he distributed to other synagogues around the country. In 1946, he took the words Kimitsiyin Teitzetaira from above the Aran Kaidish in the shul because he felt that they were too Zionist, and he replaced them with the words with words from one of the Nevi'im, which is more about social justice, which uh, fit into the the communist view of class struggles. He also used to quote Lenin and Stalin in his sermons, and. Um, and, and, and on the other hand, he keeps this shul functioning. And towards the end of the war, a growing number of people come to the shul to pray for the survival of their relatives. On one occasion, there were thousands of people who came and, uh, and to, to daven there. Um, and sometimes it was even leading Jewish figures, such as the wife of Molotov that I mentioned earlier. 
On September 2nd, 1948, a historic event took place at the shul. This is shortly after the founding of the State of Israel, which the Soviet Union recognized because they thought it would be a Soviet satellite in the Middle East, near the Suez Canal, near the British areas of the Middle East. They were kind of disappointed when the uh, kibbutz movement didn't exactly uh, get the rest of the country on board um, to become a Soviet satellite, but that's a different story. But either way, the newly appointed Israeli ambassador to the Soviet Union was Golda Meir, who was born in Kiev. She grew up in in the uh, in Russia before she moved to Milwaukee and was a school teacher there. But either way, she uh, visited the shul on one of the first Shabbos that she spent in Moscow. She comes to the shul, and there was this massive, and, and, and she came on Rosh Hashanah, and there was this massive crowd that people estimate there was close to 100,000 that greeted Golda Meir, and at the end of the, they, 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 they said, everyone said, L'shana haba Yerushalayim, so they said, oh, this is uh, Zionist propaganda, and the Soviets started bearing down on the shul, and the rabbi, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Schleifer, who did survive the uh, purge, uh, um, and uh, and he in, incredibly he gave Torah classes. He even passed away while teaching a Torah class in the shul um, in 1957. And he was able to sustain the shul in Moscow during the worst years of Stalinist repression against the Jew- Jews. And he, on one hand, demonstrates loyalty to Stalin, and he denied that there was any anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union. On the other hand, he succeeded in establishing a yeshiva in Moscow, a place to teach Jewish studies, Kol Yaakov Yeshiva. He printed a Jewish prayer book. In, 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 and both of these were post-Stalin, they were in the Khrushchev thaw, but he did it. it was, he did it, and two incredible feats. So, you know, how do you look at someone like that? So the answer is, is that, that he was able to do what he did because he understood the reality that he was living in. And that brings me to the story of the next rabbi there. Um, because he's succeeded by a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Leib Levin, who had studied in pre-World War I and the other Slabatki Yeshiva. Knesset, I'm sorry, it was after World War I. Knesset's based Yitzchak. Um, it was Baruch Ber Leibovich was the Rosh Hashiva. And this Rebuda Leib Levin was the rabbi in several Russian towns under the Soviets until he moved to Moscow to take charge of this Kol Yaakov Yeshiva, which I said Rabbi Shlomo Schleifer had established. And upon the latter's passing, he became the rabbi of Moscow until his passing in 1971. He visited the United States in 1968, and, and he at times received visitors from the U.S. Jewish community. And every time he... Anywhere he went, he was always in the presence of a KGB official. Um, so, of course, he was very vocal in his support of the Soviet regime, and that he said there's no anti-Semitism, and there's total freedom, etc., etc., etc. And many criticized him for this, but others, such as the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and such as Nachum Goldman of the American Jewish Congress, defended him. They pointed out to the obvious reality, it's a bit difficult to judge his situation, it's like an impossible situation, and he's probably doing what he can do on behalf of the Jewish community and Jewish life in the Soviet Union, despite the almost impossible circumstances, and this lip service is the least he needs to do in order to maintain his position, to maintain a minimum, minimum Jewish life. But Jewish life was on the verge of extinction. Uh, An American Jewish delegation visiting the Soviet Union declared as such in the 1950s, and it was a very, very difficult situation at this time. 
So this was uh, Yehuda Geber, Jewish History Soundbites, in part two of the history of the Jews of the Soviet Union. We'll be back in a couple of days with part three. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.